Al Capone and Dorothy Day, Wild Bill Hickok and St. Catherine Drexel, Vince Lombardi and the venerable Archbishop Fulton Sheen. These men and women were more than just historical contemporaries. They were also Catholics. And their story is our story. Join us today as we discuss that story with Emily Stimson, co-author of the American Catholic Almanac, a daily reader of patriots, saints, rogues, and the ordinary people who changed the United States. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Joined here in our studios with our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization, again here at Franciscan University, and our very good friend, Emily Stimson, who's a freelance author, who uh, writer, who's here in Steubenville. You write for so many publications, Our Sunday Visitor, uh, Touchstone, First Things, uh, Catholic Digest, there's so many. Uh, you regularly blog about food, hospitality, and friendship at the Catholic table, which is, which is awesome. And your books are, which we've talked about before, uh, These Beautiful Bones, The Everyday Theology of the Body, um, and A Catholic uh, Girl's Survival Guide for the Single Years. And today we're talking about the American Catholic Almanac, uh, a daily reader for patriots, saints, rogues, and ordinary people who change the United States of America. So welcome to the program. It's good to be here, Mike. All right, so you wrote this book. I did. But you're not a historian, per se. So what inspired you to write this book with, with Brian Birch? I shouldn't say a paycheck, should I? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. No, the credit for that goes to my co-author, Brian. Okay. Uh, Brian and the folks at Catholic Vote, in the wake of the HHS mandate uh, and the controversy surrounding that, were alarmed that so few Catholics seemed concerned that the government was going to be infringing upon Catholics' religious liberties. You know, lots of Catholics didn't even bat an eyelid. And what they realized is that part of the reason for that is that American Catholics have forgotten our story. Mm. We don't know what was sacrificed so that we could build our parishes and build our schools and exercise the kind of freedoms we have today. And when you don't know what you have, when you don't know what went into getting you what you have, it's hard to appreciate it as much. So we wanted to tell stories and remind people of you know, what was so great about the people who built the church in America. So we've, and I'm we, a storyteller. So we've forgotten the, the story and you're helping us with that. Why, why did the church? I mean, why, why did we lose it? Why did we, we forget about those things? Do you know? Yeah, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that and Regis and Scott might be able to chime in with something wiser than me. But I think part of it is the American Catholic immigrant experience. We're very focused on first surviving and then mm. fitting in. And so preserving our stories wasn't the natural priority. But also, one of the fun things about this book was that we were using old textbooks from Catholic schools in the 1920s huh. and 30s. And Catholic schools did teach Catholic history then. Really? They did really talk about the great Catholic American Revolutionary War heroes and the sisters and the missionaries. But you see a real shift in Catholic education post-Vatican II, mm. where conforming to public school standards and using public school textbooks and just really focusing on being American and not Catholic was the priority. And so within a generation or two, 
Nobody knows who these yeah. people were. Yeah, so many, I know, the Irish need not apply, and they, they really, there were so many that just wanted to assimilate. So that, that's probably a big, big reason why we've kind of lost that and pushed away and wanted to just be American and losing our Catholic identity or immigrant status in some ways that we've lost those stories. Well, and that really we saw in the 1950s and 60s with John F. Kennedy and Catholics had reached right. sort of a peak yeah. of cultural yeah. influence. And yeah. so it was, we wanted to be like everybody else. Right. And the Protestants at the public school were learning weren't learning about you know Commodore John Barry, the great Catholic Revolutionary War hero. They weren't learning about the first bishop of Philadelphia. So why should our kids? They should be learning what the Protestant kids are learning and the public school kids are learning. And we became we valued those stories to keep more than we them. valued our own. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's you know that is the immigrant experience because the the parents who hmm. come over are so eager to fit in. You know, but even more to educate their kids so that they fit in. And you find, you know, in the stories that are told, that the kids of these immigrants are often ashamed of the accents of their parents, and so they want to disabuse themselves of any sort of ethnic badges. It's the third and fourth generations, you know. But in this case, what you are pointing out is that the Catholic school system in the 20s and the 30s, especially the priests and the religious, were the ones who recognized the importance, I mean, the strategic value of Catholic identity. So it wasn't just Irish, it wasn't just German, it really right. was this, this larger spiritual identity that united them, you know. The other thing I wanted to mention too that I like about this so much is that it doesn't just go back to the 20s and 30s or even the 1860s. It goes back to the 1600s with Cecil Calvert. I just, you know, it's not a history book. It, that needs to be clarified. It's more of a, a series of stories for each day. A storybook. Yeah, it's a storybook. And to recognize that Maryland is sort of like this laboratory experiment, you know, and this tug of war that goes back and forth between, you know, a Catholic haven, and then the Protestants take it over, and then the Catholics get it back. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And that story is like, good night, you know. It, it also anticipates the struggles that we face today, too. Yeah. I think it gives you encouragement that, you know, if you get involved, even in politics, there's a way to do this, you know. God will hear our prayers and raise up, dare I say, good politicians. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I, I like uh, so very much about the book. It, it, it is eminently uh, readable, and it has a, an anecdotal quality that contributes to its overall charm. There's also a certain pathos surrounding it because you have to uh, exhume these stories, which really should be part of the living memory of Catholics, but we've forgotten our history, as if to say we're ashamed of it. We want to put it uh, behind us uh, as we march into this brave new world. I, I was struck some years ago when somebody said, you know, about the Italians, the first thing they forget when they come to America is the language of Dante. Hmm. And, and the language they acquire is not particularly impressive. Uh, and I think that's true of the Irish as well. May maybe they have less to remember than, than the Italians. Uh, somebody called them the crybabies of the Western world. I think of them Regis. as the saviors. You can't say things like yeah. that in my I mean, they remember the that. potato <laughs> famine. Yeah. Yeah, and Irish need not apply. I think it was Freud who said that here is the one race that could not benefit from psychoanalysis. And that, that, that may be a, a credit to I know where the you live, Irish. <laughs> well, I'm mostly I German, will remember I you think. in St. Patrick's. <laughs> yeah. But it is true. One, one entry struck me. Uh, there is an anti-Americanism that runs through the ethos of, uh, of this republic. And it, it manifests itself in, in a ferocious way in 1867. You record the, this event when Andrew Johnson wanted to uh, establish relations with the Vatican. 
Congress uh, 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 shot him down uh, so conclusively that it took at least a century uh, until uh, Truman in 1951 decided to nominate, I think it was General Mark Clark, who had spearheaded the liberation of Rome to be his representative to the Vatican. And the Congress mobilized against this because uh, Protestant sentiment was so overwhelmingly against that kind of recognition. Not only Protestant sentiment, you know, at the time in the middle of the 19th century, there was a great split that was more than slavery. The Unitarians in New England and the Presbyterians and the Baptists down south couldn't agree on anything except this. Right. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and this is so, this is uh, helpful, I think, in understanding why anti-Catholicism became a unifying factor yeah. uh, in American history in somewhat ironic and, and, and problematic ways. Well, it was Arthur Schlesinger Sr. who said that, that anti-Catholicism is really the anti-Semitism of the intellectuals, the academics, the elites. They really disdained Rome. I mean, that was the fear in 1867, that if we send a representative to Rome, then this grand papal conspiracy will launch itself, and before right. we know it, we'll all be speaking Dago. Well, they also were believing at the time that, they, you know, the they said that the Pope had shut down the Protestant right. services in the Vatican, and right. there were so many rumors. But you know, we all know about Irish need not apply, and we yeah. hear about you know it didn't have diplomatic relations. But for nearly a century, uh, in New York, there could yeah. be no public mass. Right. That's right. If you right. were a priest in Massachusetts or New York and you were found, you were hung. Yeah. Um, if you were suspected of being a priest, you were hung. So for decades, there wasn't a single mass allowed anywhere in right. the United States. And the oath of office for New York the politicians. Oath of office. And, if you were you know, a Catholic, you need not run for office. That's right. You couldn't so, in good conscience because you'd have to swear an oath disavowing allegiance to the Pope in all matters ecclesiastical and civil, as you point out. Not right. getting a job yeah. was the least of Catholics' problems when it right. came to anti-Catholicism. Right. Anti it's unbelievable. And so when we think about today, you know, HHS mandates or all these other things, it's really not as bad as, as our history. New, or novel. It's or not new. as that's bad right. and it's not as new. And that's what I kept laughing about when I was you know, discovering each day what, what new things to write about. And I would say, oh, we've got no problems now compared right. to then. Like we're you know, up in arms and weeping and crying and gnashing our teeth about the HHS mandate. But no one's burning our churches. That's right. Our bishops aren't in exile. Our I priests mean, aren't getting shot. Our priests no. aren't getting shot. Yeah, it's, it's a huge difference. Well, in one of your entries, uh, you mentioned President Bush going all the way to Andrews Air Force Base to receive Pope Benedict which you say is unprecedented. I mean, normally, if some guy comes to this country, he goes to Washington uh, to meet uh, the president. But here, the president goes out of his way mm. to greet the pope and, and praises him, acknowledges him as a great leader of the free world. I mean, what, what a contrast. I mean, in, 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 in terms of fairness uh, uh, to the record, we have grown somewhat uh, in, in progress and tolerance. I mean, that would have been unthinkable a century ago. That's so true, that's so true. You know, the other thing I like about this book is that there's a subtext, and that is in the midst of all of these struggles, and the struggles are really helpful, I think, to see that down through the centuries, <laughs> we have ample precedence for all of the HH, you know, as mandate issues that we have now for religious freedom. But you have, you know, you have John Wayne, you have Bing Crosby, you have yeah. Perry Como, Perry you even Como. have yeah. Buffalo Perry Bill's Como. deathbed yeah. conversion, you yes. know? Right. I mean, there are so many heroic figures that have been alive and g growing as Catholics, or at least coming back to their faith here in America, too. 
that I can't help but think that people are going to find inspiration there too in the ordinariness of these, pe well, of these people. Well, these people are fa there's so many fascinating characters, and people think of history as boring That's and dull yeah. and dry. And what we want to—it's not boring and dull and dry. There's nothing more exciting than people who are radically living the faith. There's nothing more exciting than trying to establish the faith in a country that's hostile to it. And I was so excited about the stories, so we made sure to keep them. You know, short, they're all 300 yeah. words, it's a story a day. Yeah. But these stories are fascinating. These people, they deserve us to be excited about them. Yeah. Well, and, and it's so, as Regis said, it's so eminently readable. You know, that, that you can sit down, it's, it's a daily reader, and you can get through, and just, and you learn so much in those, those 300 words per, <laughs> per character. And some of them are, are the rogues, as you say, <laughs> as well as the patriots and the saints and, and so forth. So it, it's a beautiful story. I don't know how you picked just these 365 uh, individuals, but as you did this, you know, was there anything that surprised you? Anything that kind of brought you, uh, shocked you, I guess, as you were doing this? Well, if you are Facebook friends with me, you'd know that every day I was surprised because I was learning a new <laughs> story, and I would say, how did I never know this before? I know history. I mean, I was a history major in college. I thought I knew my American Catholic history, but so many stories of mm. these brave, wonderful, wild, funny people uh, but also then there would be whole trends I didn't know about. African-American Catholicism hmm. uh, in the 19th century, right up through the Civil Rights Movement, there was a beautiful, thriving community of African-American Catholics all around the country, and that's disappeared to a large extent. But one of the, we had an African-American -Ameri African bishop in the mid-19th century in Portland, Maine. The first bishop of Portland, Maine was of mixed African-American descent. The second founding father of Georgetown University, also of African-American descent. Right. Right. So you see yeah. this rich legacy that, right. that has just been forgotten about. So it was, it was just a, it was, yeah, it was such that's a joy awesome. to write because I was always learning and discovering something oh, new. That's awesome. I remember when I converted, I discovered something that everybody else seemed to know but me, and that is that the KKK wasn't just anti-African-American, oh, it was right. also anti-Catholic, right. every that's bit right. as much. And it's refounding, yeah. yeah, that's one of the reasons it was And the thing is, they, they really did go together back then and still do in some ways. Yeah. Well, the movement of nativism that swept across so yeah. much of America in the 19th century right. targeted Catholics because there were just so damn many of us. That's you know, right. That's wave right. upon wave of immigrants coming to this country. But they also singled out uh, Jews, uh, anybody who was foreign, Everything strange, odd-looking. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think it, it's good to know that. Right. Yeah. And aren't we called to be countercultural, uh, whether by culture or by faith? Really, that's the unity of this. Well, and we see the same thing today. And I think that's one of the things that made me sad was as you see this history of nativism and Catholics being targeted throughout the 19th century for being different. And that still goes on today. It's not necessarily always Catholics who are being targeted, but we still have that strong anti-immigrant sentiment. Right. And so you oh, think, yeah. oh gosh, we were the ones who were persecuted 100 years ago. Yeah. We need to have a different attitude today. So there's so many lessons that are relevant that help you understand the American Catholic experience better and understand what we're going through today and how we can respond. That's awesome. Uh, stay with us for the next section on the saints and the spiritual fathers and mothers uh, of this country. The big takeaway I had from researching this book is just how good we Catholics in the United States have it these days. There are certainly threats to our religious liberty, but our churches and convents are not being burned to the ground. Our priests and nuns are not being hunted down to be tarred and feathered or worse. Mass is not outlawed, and our right to vote is not threatened by club-wielding mobs. All of these things have been the reality for our Catholic forebears on these shores. 
we absolutely must continue to defend religious liberty because it was something cherished and fought for so courageously by those who went before and because it is a good and proper feature of a just society. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, today I've been talking to author and blogger Emily Stimson about her new book, The Catholic uh, American Almanac, or The American Catholic Almanac. And um, Emily, this is, this is really fascinating. And we've talked a little bit about why you wrote the book. Uh, but but you, you, I think you have every blessed and every saint uh, from America in here, right? Think so. Think so? Okay. So as, as you look at this, uh, was there a favor, something that stood out to you that you really, you know, were really drawn to or really inspired by? Well, I think one of the things that surprised me, I, I call them the forgotten French women. Hmm. Uh, so St. Rose Philippine Duchenne and uh, St. Uh, Theodore Gurin, uh, which they were remarkable women. Uh, Mother, uh, Mother Gurin, she was a very weak, sickly woman did not want to be a missionary. She thought her order and the Lord did not know what they were doing when she was <laughs> sent over with the Sisters of Providence. Uh, on the way across, that seemed to be confirmed for her. All their money was stolen. So these sisters arrive in America without a penny to their name. Then they get to their home and they think the bishop had told them they would have a place in, this, in the city, in the diocesan see. But there were some problems, and basically they found themselves in a one-room corn crib in the middle of the woods. They went through famine. They lost everything in a fire. They were all sick. And Mother Grown was like, if anything good comes out of this, you know it is the good Lord, because there's no other explanation. And then St. Um, Rose Philippine Duchenne, who all she ever wanted her entire life was to come to the United States and evangelize the Native Americans. When she was a little girl, that's what she dreamed of. When she mm. was a sister before the French Revolution, that's what she dreamed of. After the reign of terror, and she survived that and became a religious sister with the Sisters of the Sacred Heart, that's what she dreamed about. And finally she got the chance, and she arrives in St. Louis, and the bishop's like, you know what, all the Native Americans have gone westward, we got kids who need educating, so can you start some schools here? And that's what she does, but she keeps dreaming and she keeps hoping, and finally when she's 72 years old, she gets to go to Kansas to teach the Potawatomi Indians, but she's so old she can't learn the language, so all <laughs> she does every day is pray, and she prays for the missions and for the Native Americans, and so her nickname from the Potawatomi was the woman who prays always. Wow. And yeah, she finally had to go back to St. Louis. Those are great stories for us, sometimes yeah. frustrated <laughs> in what we think yeah. we want to do. And, and that story, as extraordinary as it is, uh, and you tell it so winningly, doesn't have the same traction as the story of the North American martyrs, yeah. those yeah. brave Jesuits like Isaac Jogue yeah. and John de Brebeuf. And that's really a pity yeah. because, I mean, this woman seems to be the stuff of which real sanctity is made. Yeah. And it's much more our experience. Most of us aren't slaughtered, you know, out in the mission right. field. We just find our efforts thwarted and that's frustrated right. and the 
offices aren't what we want them to be. Well, I mean, so many saint stories are told originally to kids, mm -hmm. and they are attracted to violence and torture Lied and death. And and yes. Yes. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. For sure. You know, what I also like is Appendix A, where you have the list yeah. of the mm -hmm. dozen or so American saints. And, and now with the upcoming canonization of Unipero Serra, we're going to have the baker's dozen. Right. But there are like 16 or 17 venerables. It's, we have this book now by our little table where Kimberly and I do morning prayer. And so it's, they're not just feel-good stories. I mean, there's some feel-angry stories, you yeah, know, yeah. when you realize some of the tribulations that yeah. we have faced, you know. But I would say that they're really, you know, we have this sense as Catholics of the church universal. But we also need to cultivate a sense of being a particular church. You know, and that, that can be true for Steubenville, Ohio. That can be true for Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But I think it also needs to be renewed in our own sense as being American Catholics, that we have American saints. And, and, and they're, they're all, they're scattered throughout. And their lives are in different periods of time. And I just feel as though this enriches our own identity and challenges us to become saints ourselves. It does. Well, you know, one of the things I've been saying is one of the, the fourth commandment, honor thy father and mother. And in not knowing about our own saints, we're failing to honor our spiritual mothers and fathers in wow. this country. Yeah. So there's a, and I also, what you said about American Catholics, you know, sometimes we treat the phrase American Catholic like it's a dirty phrase. You know, we don't want to be associated with Catholic with the Y, you know, the American church. But there is a real pride in being American Catholics, and there's a distinct experience, and there were distinct sacrifices made, and yet we don't honor those sacrifices when we don't remember them. Right. Yeah. yeah. And we can't know who we are. But I mean, people. to be sure, some of the people you're asking us to remember were pretty roguish. <laughs> like one, one villain in particular stands out for me. That's Mario Cuomo. Mm -hmm. You list him for that infamous speech at Notre Dame, what was it, in 1984. And, and you, I think you end by saying he's sort of the paragon, the model of the, uh, the Catholic uh, dissenting pro-choice politician. Right. Right. Uh, but he gets a page, he gets 300 words. He was lucky because not much else fell on that day. So <laughs> no, we, we did want, sometimes the rogues do show up for that reason because we were trying to fill out this calendar, but that's part of our story too. Sure. Uh, Father Robert Drynan, who gave all of the Catholic pro-choice politicians their theological cover for supporting right. abortion. Yeah. We don't like that part of the story. It's not one of the right. pretty parts of the story, but it helps us understand who we it. are today. Right. But yanking yeah. Drynan from Congress is one of the best things the society of <laughs> did. Yes. You know, yes. Yes. The Land so Lakes Agreement, too, you point out the fact that in the 60s, Catholic universities really kind of sold their soul. I mean, yeah. they did a few things to sort of genuflect towards theology and that sort of thing. But we really lost our birthright when we right. were secularizing universities right. in right. mass in a kind of deliberate and strategic way. And, and it's... Ooh, again, another painful sort of feel-bad story. Right. But even with that, with Land O'Lakes, you also have a page on Father Michael Scanlon, I you know? And, right. uh, no bias, I no bias. <laughs> 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 but, but it's beautiful to see, though, the contrast between the rogues right, and, right. and the saints, you know? Right. And that's part of our story. That's part, and really, ultimately, that's our choice in this life. We, we have different paths. We, our, our family is pretty big and diverse in the past. That I, we I don't want to <laughs> place you too high in the pantheon, but, but I'm, I'm reminded of what Solzhenitsyn said out to do. He said that he greatly feared in Russia that there was a, an amputation of memory mm. and his charge, his task, uh, and he had a charism, he certainly had prophetic gifts, was to restore that memory. And in a way that's what you're doing, a recovery yeah. of memory so that we know who we are, where we have been. In order to blaze a trail into the future, you need to have a sense of the past. I mean, Eliot says uh, history, Eliot says that, that uh, History is a timeless series of moments, 
and a people without history is not redeemed mm -hmm. from time because you need to follow those still points through time, and that's what you do, a series of still points. You know, that, that significant work that was done in tandem by Pope Emeritus Benedict and Pope Francis Lumen Fidei, yeah. The Light of Faith, this is also, I think, one of the highlights of that document that came out, and that is this loss of memory, deep memory, the, yeah. the, you know. There, in fact, the phrase is massive amnesia. Yeah. Unquote. Mm. You know, mm. and it really is what makes secularization sort of proceed unimpeded because we don't have a sense of the past. We don't even have much of a sense of the future in, in any eschatological sense. Right. Right. But when we grasp time sacramentally, we are empowered as citizens politically, you know, to, to kind of be fearless like a number of people you point out were, you know, and uh, I think it's precisely what will enable people like, well, my wife is running for city council. <laughs> it's like, what is she thinking? I think she's thinking a lot like along the lines of these people, you know. Well, I do think we sometimes act like the Catholic Church in America is like Athena springing forth fully formed from the head of Zeus, that we just have these churches and we have these schools and we have these freedoms. And that's, if you think that's how it happened, you're gonna lose it in the future. Yeah. Oh. Point out some of the others that you think we've forgotten, that oh. we don't celebrate. I mean, there's there's all of them, really. But, there's but, so I many. I mean, besides Barry Como. <laughs> I have such and a ben crush Crosby. on Barry Como. My boyfriend, I would finish the show and I would be like, I have a crush on Barry Como. You know, I did, I just loved Barry Como. He's such a good man. But we're not gonna talk about him right now. I will tell you about um, the first Bishop of Denver, Bishop yes. Mashbuff. Um, okay. He is one of my favorites. You know, he actually, if you've ever read uh, Willa Cather's Death Comes for an Archbishop. Yeah. Mm. He is the priest yeah. friend to you know Archbishop Lamy, who's the archbishop in that. But he was, I've, he was kind of like a yellow Labrador. He just loved everyone. And mm. you would send him to Ohio, and he loved his people in Ohio. And then you would send him to New Mexico, and he loved his people in New Mexico. And then he got sent to Colorado, and he loved his people in Colorado. And he threw himself in with such passion and devotion mm wherever he served. Uh, you know, he would travel around in this little wagon uh, to go to all of the mining camps. And he was actually in a terrible wagon accident, broke a leg, was for the rest of his life lame because of it. So he's become my favorite. I figured not a lot of people are praying to him because his cause not, isn't even open. So if, you know, he's in heaven and I ask him for help, like, I can be his people. <laughs> <So> <laughs> you got uh, his undivided attention. Yeah, but Father Peter Whelan is another fantastic Ooh, example yeah. of a priest who is forgotten. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a priest who was an Irish immigrant, priest in the Diocese of Georgia during the Civil War and had a fascinating life before then. But uh, in 1865, Andersonville Prison, mm -hmm. which was built for 6,000 men, ended up housing 30,000 men. No shelters, no latrines. They had one source of water that they used both as their latrine and their drinking water. You have crime, you have death, it's hell on earth. It's one of the lowest chapters in American history. A missionary priest passes through, sees how horrible this is, says we've got to send someone in. Bishop Savannah says, does anyone want to go? Father Whelan says he'll go. He's in his 60s at this time, you know, sort of a, and 60s wasn't, you know, 60s is the new 40 today. So, but, but he, was, he was frail. He goes, no one else would go. Not Protestants, not Catholics. Every once in a while someone would dripple in 
and try to help out, but they'd be gone within a day or two. And he stayed for the entire summer. Yeah. He settled disputes. He took care of the sick. He found ways for them to get food. When all of the men were just going to be released with no food, nothing, he went and borrowed like $10,000 so he could have bread baked for all of these northern prisoners to take with wow. them on their journey. Wow. Yeah. He, he contracted tuberculosis when he was in prison. Friends gave him money so he could go to a place that was more hospitable and recover. Instead, he used that money to pay back the money he borrowed you know, to buy the men bread. Yeah. So they called him the Angel of Andersonville. And when he died, people from north and south came to go to his funeral. They said the funeral procession was the longest Savannah had ever seen. Wow. So ha people like this are just- Has his cause been introduced? No, I, after I, I, when I finished the book, I said I was gonna quit my job as a writer and just go around and right. start advocating for some of these people's <laughs> causes. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna become the thorn in diocese. It know, really diocese enhances, aside. I think, one's love for the church, uh, not, not, not an idealized church, but a flesh and blood church. That's right. I, mean, I, I love a comment that Daniel Liu made who said, I, I love best of all that church mud splashed from history, just covered with the dirt and the grime and the blood hmm. of the past. I mean, every time I pop into St. Peter's downtown, this lovely neo-broke church, I'm, I'm struck by the sense of history. It's rich suffused with history. I mean, there was a saint who went through that church back in the 1840s, John Neumann. Mm -hmm. And, and somehow, it, it, somehow it, it enriches uh, the experience of the moment uh, to have that enlargement of the past. Mm -hmm. We're living And to the see past. the baptismal registry right. I know, he has signed right. by hand. I know. It really is inspiring. Yeah, it and is. It, puts that, it puts flesh onto the church. Right. And at the same time, it reminds us that the church is not Catholic simply because it's global, but because it's truly cosmic and universal. That St. John Neumann is still alive more now than ever before, right, right. and he's invested yeah. in the American Catholic. And, and you, you can't right help but, but admire and, and be grateful for the sacrifices all of these people made to build churches like St. Yeah, Peter's right. in Steubenville. It's stunningly beautiful. That's right. And, and the fact that you can kneel in the same place where these people who have been dead for centuries knelt in prayer and piety, that, that's, that's quite inspiring. Well, one of my favorite things since I finished the book is I travel a fair bit giving talks or going to conferences. And when you go into the diocesan cathedrals, you'll find their bishops often buried there, or you'll find shrines. And I feel like wherever I go now, I'm visiting my friends. And I have to, I have to pay yeah. them, you know, uh, stop and say a prayer and thank them for what they did. And it does increase your sense of family. It does increase your sense, you know, I feel like I have real sympathy for, you know, Bishop Conwell of Philadelphia, who got ran out of his cathedral. And so I went to say hi to him, because I'm not sure how many people go and say hi to him. And you just feel this, camaraderie with the church through the you ages. You can't love that which you do not know. And no. so this right, is this right. helping us. It makes you us. love the church right. so much You know, more. I met a number of people in Baltimore who formed a group called the Ark and the Dove, and I asked this fellow, where'd they get that? I don't know. I do now, <laughs> you know. <laughs> These are the boats that brought the Catholics to, to Chesapeake Bay. Oh, and you know, yeah. they met up in Barbados with the Dove, you know, and yeah. I, forget, I might have it backwards, but uh, that kind of story makes me want to go back to Baltimore, you know, and join those unknown, unnamed saints who came over. Well, and yeah. you know what the high school names start meaning. You're like, yeah. oh, exactly. Bishop John England High School. It's not just a high school, it was the first Bishop of Charleston, yeah. who was Archie just a wonderful man. So, yeah. Yes, you know, my I was able to work in the priest who founded my parish and yeah. the Catholic high school in my town, Father George Alleman. And so these people, they stop being names of institutions right. and right. start becoming our brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, that's great. Stay with us on Franciscan University Presents.
one almost unknown fact of the American Civil War is the fact that the only trained nurses in the country when the war broke out were the Catholic Sisters. And both in the North and in the South, their uh, assistance was asked for and deeply appreciated. There were over 600 sisters who nursed during the American Civil War at great risk to their own lives, sometimes on the battlefield, also catching the diseases that were rampant. Uh, North and South crossed the lines. The soldiers kind of respected them, and I call them the repairs of the breach between North and South, between Catholic and Protestant, between heaven and hell. There were several Catholic priests who served as chaplains to both Union and Southern armies in this, during the Civil War. One example is Father James Sheeran, a redemptorist priest uh, who served with the Confederate Army. He frequently went to the front of the line, in danger, putting himself in danger, his life in danger, to serve, to minister the sacraments. One point he crossed the Confederate line over to the Union line to serve in a hospital ministering the sacraments to the sick and dying there, both to members of the North and the South. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, this entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University. Uh, we're recording this right now in the Communication Arts Studio here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Um, the students are operating the cameras and equipment. Our regular panelists are theology faculty here at Franciscan University. Uh, we've been talking to Emily Stimson, author and blogger, uh, about the American Catholic Almanac, an excellent book and a great daily reader, uh, getting us deeper into who we are as a people, as a Catholics in America. Um, we, we touched on a lot of things in the last segment, a lot of different great saints or venerables that we probably don't know a lot about, but, but I really think that there's, uh, the, the, the Georgian martyrs oh, are really yeah. worth spending a little yeah. time on. If you could just share a little bit about, about them and their story. Well, sure, they're one of the best examples of when we look back and say, well, what do these saints have to teach us for today? Yes. We can look at the Georgian martyrs and say, they can teach us about what it means to really die for the church's teachings. Mm. Um, and particularly the teaching they died for was marriage. Yes. So these were a group of Franciscans. They had come to Florida, then settled along the Georgia coast on a very series of islands. And they preached marriage is the union of one man and one woman. The tribe, I think it's pronounced the Guale, who they uh, were preaching to, at first accepted that, but they were a polygamous tribe. So they tried to abide by these church's teachings on marriage, but after a while, a few of them got antsy and were like, you know what, I want another wife. That's right. And the preacher man, we're not, they were not gonna agree, so they decided, well, we've gotta kill him. And one by one, they went through these Ooh, missions. And they, they hunted them down. They hunted That's them right. down. Slaughter. They laid in wait for them. One so was why, why can't they just let tolerance, you know, by gods be by gods, you know? Uh, yeah, and the, and the priests certainly weren't going to be like, oh, sure, if you want to have an extra wife, let's change the, you know, right. so they definition of marriage. They did not bend, and they yeah. lost their lives for that. Oh. So you see you know, that. Back then, they yeah. used tomahawks. Today, it's law degrees. But <laughs> 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 they lie in wait. Yes, even yes. Still. They do have scalps. Yeah. And that cause has has advanced pretty considerably. Yeah, I believe they're, is there, are they beatified yet? I'm not sure where they are, but, but I know that the cause is open. Yeah. And right. Our own Father Conrad Harkins was for yeah. years advancing right. that cause in the Vatican as well as in Spain, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's a beautiful story of, of, of 
Franciscans who, Catholics who were out there standing up for the witness of marriage. I mean, we, we, it isn't something new in the church. I, you know, we just, again, bring that back in, standing up for the faith. And I think about, you know, even, this isn't American, but, you know, Thomas More and others who stood up for marriage, you know? I mean, this isn't something new that we are defending the sanctity of marriage, but there were so many bold people who were willing to put their lives in the line. And we need to know that those hap that happened here, too, in America. It did, and, so. you know, that's where I, if I were a bishop, and I've actually had, uh, priests love this book because they call it homily fodder. You know, it's just, yeah, here's yeah, my yeah. anecdote for today's right, homily. Right. But if I were a bishop, I would find so much consolation in this book because you see that the battles you're fighting now, right. your predecessors were fighting 200 years ago. My yeah. favorite quotes in the book, um, an early, early diocese of Philadelphia was described by a contemporary bishop as a deranged mess. Um, so the first, they say stress of running Philadelphia killed the first bishop. <laughs> they took him five years to find another priest who was willing to take it on. He was exiled from his own cathedral and finally had to retire in shame because he couldn't manage his people. Um, and so then there oh, there's all sorts of problems in Philadelphia. But Philadelphia is still a very challenging diocese. So yes, if I were Archbishop Chapu, I would just be going, okay, this is what Well, there's no church burnings today, but there's... There yeah. were church burnings in Philadelphia. That's there right. were church burnings right. in Louisville yeah. and Little Rock. You know, that's always, I'm like, the bishops aren't being exiled from their cathedrals. They're not burning our convents and churches down. So, so there's comfort in that. That's we're right. We're not dying yet. We're just having our businesses yes. taken away from us. So it's... We got to prepare. Got to prepare. And... And pray to these people. Like, I mean, for the people who are out on the front line of defending marriage, they should all be praying to the Georgian martyrs. You know, we have these friends in heaven who understand our battles and have fought these battles and want to come to our aid. And we're just sort of letting the grace they could obtain for us sit on the table. So let's talk a little bit about the laity. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so there, there's, a, there's sometimes a, a, a notion that prior to Vatican II, it was, you know, pay, pray, and obey. You know, that was the, the mantra for the laity. D did you find that in your, your study? Did you find the realities uh, of that notion? I would love to see someone tell that to the original Mother Jones. <laughs> That's what she was supposed to be doing. You know, she was a hellraiser who was advocating for workers' rights. Pro-life, by the way. Yes. Um, and like the magazine named after her, or Dorothy Day, or Cesar Chavez, or Margaret Harry, who was this poor, illiterate woman who found herself, uh, her, she'd been widowed, she lost her daughter, she had no family, she was in New Orleans. She's working as an ironist at a laundry. And she fell in love with the little orphans who she could see mm. playing out her window. So she started saving up her money to give to the sisters. Then she had an opportunity to buy a dairy cow. Well, she was a smart woman, and she turned that dairy cow milk delivery business into a huge dairy. Then she did the same with the bakery. <laughs> Ended up giving what was then over half a million dollars. Now it would just be hundreds of millions of dollars to the orphans of New Orleans. You know, I think what Catholics did then is what we're supposed to be doing now. Right. And that's not worrying so much about the governance of the church Internal or do I have my role in the liturgy, but am I transforming the culture? They went right. out and they cared so for the poor they did, and they, they advocated in politics. Oh. No, they were just, so, they did what they were supposed to do. They transformed the fabric of society yeah. to make it look more like the kingdom of God. And yeah. that's what we should be doing too. Yeah. So they're great. Yeah. And, and not just in the, the case of orphanages. I like that day that you devote to Walker Percy. Yes. You know, oh, the yeah. artists and, and the writers. Yeah, exactly. It's culture too, not just politics mm -hmm. and not just works of charity. Right. Uh, I think we're so quick to point out people like, you know, the venerable Fulton Sheen, who is, you know, one of my great loves, or Father Peyton and the Family Rosary Crusade. And you've got great material on those as well. 
But I do think that the single most important element in this is the challenge that we have as lay people to find our story, mm -hmm. to find those who've come before us and at the same time to learn the, the lessons that they give us. And to see their struggles. One of my favorite stories was the one I wrote about J.F. Powers, who if you read yep. the, his stories about priests, they have this sort of underlying you know, sarcasm, not quite, I don't want to say bitterness, but he was a man of, who was a very devout, faithful man, but whose faith was challenged in profound ways mm. through loss. And he had this great quote, and I was like, you know, you've got to choose. You've got to, you've got to eventually make a decision. He's like, I'm betting on God to win, not to show. <laughs> and, <I think> <laughs> and you know, so that's many of his stories, by his own admission, uh, show us uh, people playing bingo at the foot of the cross. Yeah. Uh, that, that irony, that contrast, I think is very telling. I, I like the fact that you, you feature, you showcase literary figures as well. Mm. I mean, Walker Percy, J.F. Powers, Flannery O'Connor, Andy Warhol. I mean, yes. <laughs> Andy Warhol, very complex. Was, I mean, he, me when I really there is a complexity oh. to him, yes. Uh, and, and the fact that despite being a homosexual, he struggles, he's continent, uh, he's never an apostate. I mean, you, you would think that given the art uh, uh, he, he features, uh, he ought to be an apostate. Right. But in fact, he, he hangs on to his faith. He's from Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. of all places. We have Thank a wonderful, we have a very, uh, <laughs> there's a so, museum with some racy things there. Right, right. That yeah. we went through recently. Well, uh, you also feature converts pretty prominently in this book. Uh, Not Scott. I know, sorry. he's got Thank three. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's always a second edition. That's right, that's right. Wait till I die. There's been enough <laughs> so, so highlight uh, some of them for us. Oh, I, the converts were some of my favorite stories. Uh, and you see how similar the, convert, the stories the converts were and the sensations they caused back then to now. So you had Father John Thayer, who was the first real serious convert uh, from oh, old New England money. And he wrote his conversion story and it went, you know, it, Viral. Was, it, was, Rome, it was the Rome sweet home of yeah, yeah. late 18th century America. <laughs> Uh, and he actually became a priest, but he was such a fiery Congregationalist preacher that the American Catholics didn't like him so much. Couldn't so he handle him. Ireland, they couldn't <laughs> handle him. Uh, but what I think the converts really brought was some of them made Catholicism more palatable. So Fanny mm -hmm. Allen, the first Catholic nun from New England, who was the daughter of Ethan Allen, right. she yeah. made very you know anti-Catholic New Englanders sit up and go, oh, well, maybe there's something to this Catholicism. And then you have people like Arrestus Brownson yeah. and Father Isaac Hecker yeah. and uh, Father James Kent Stone, who they called the American John Henry Newman. And they brought such a passion for evangelization. Mm. They appreciated what other Catholics were taking for granted, and they wanted to make sure that was being shared with their fellow Protestants. And I think oh, we so still right. see that today, where we have Protestant converts who are like, come on, Catholics, like, right. talk about Reminding this. Reminding us, dusting off what yeah. was so true and so rich. You know, Claire so Booth Luce as well, I mean, yes. in the 50s, yes. more recently, and with Fulton Sheen as the convert-making machine, yeah. fully operative back then, too. You know, I did find that particularly inspiring, you know. And I'll be honest, I found dozens and dozens of vignettes that taught me things I just didn't know about people I'd never heard of. And so it isn't just like rehashing old stories and then finding little tidbits that you didn't know, but it really is entire chapters of our history that can be filled in. Now, I, I don't know that we've, we've all canvassed every entry, all 365, right. but did you yeah. include Rose Hawthorne? I did. Okay. I did. Yeah, the daughter of uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. She was wonderful. An extraordinary wonderful. woman. She was. She, um, you know, she had grown up in the literary circles of her father, 
was in a very difficult marriage, became even yeah. more difficult after they lost their daughter. Uh, she ended up converting and her husband and she separated. But what sh she became a Dominican nun, but before that she founded a hospice for dying cancer patients. And this was at a time when people didn't know what caused cancer and they thought it might be contagious. So if you had mm. cancer and you were mm. poor, you were left to die in the worst of You're conditions. Isolated, yeah. And that's one of the great things, particularly about the women in the book, the, the women who became religious sisters, they did what no one else would do. No one else would take care of the cancer patients. So Rose, Rose Hawthorne stepped up. No one else would go to Hawaii and take care of the lepers. So Mother Marianne of Molokai went and yeah. stepped up. Yeah. You know, these women who, you know, anyone who thinks that religious sisters are uh, shrinking violets, shrinking violets, <laughs> they were forces to be reckoned with. Yeah. And yeah. When, when you think about um, the beliefs, the fears, the struggles um, of our spiritual forefathers in America. How has that how has their thought, fears, and, and so forth affected us today or America? One of the things that was most inter interesting for me about writing the book was seeing the sort of the genesis, the seedlings of what we've become today, for good and for ill. So mm -hmm. Americans operating alongside their Protestant brothers and sisters were very affected by the Protestants. Mm -hmm. They wanted to have more say in their church government. They wanted to be able to kind of pick and choose what they believed because the Protestants had all their different beliefs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that created a lot of problems. We have the heresy of Americanism. We still have cafeteria Catholicism. Sure. But the fact that so many Catholics wanted to be involved in their churches, involved in their parishes, I think is one of the reasons why we see such an active Catholic lady in the U.S. today. If you go to Canada, if you go to Europe, you don't find lay Catholics working for the church. You don't find mm. large publishing houses run by laity or apostolates like you know, the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. You just don't see it. It's all the priests. But here in America, there was such a desire right. to be yep. as active as our Protestant brothers and sisters. You know, that's, mm. that's really a significant point, yeah. you know, because I, I think we tend to fixate on controversial figures, especially when they're bishops or cardinals, that sort of thing, you know. And parenthetically, I would say this, that reading about Cardinal Mundelein was also illuminating because, you know, theologically conservative and yet politically liberal. Yes. And, you know, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's been around a long time. Yeah. But I was talking recently to a fellow in Ireland who's trying to d develop a, a literary apostolate and an online presence, and he was just like, oh, we're so envious of you Americans. I'm like, why? He said, you have a Catholic middle class. He said, you know, our legacy is the clergy and the laity are just sort of dependent. And it's like, you know, in America, you have all of these well-educated, apostolic, active. I'm like, really? And then he started ticking off all of the, uh, you know, the, the magazines or the apostles, the publishing Movements. houses, the universities. It's like staggering because all I see are the, the problematic features, yeah. you know, and yet, the same thing is, you know, happening now as was happening then. Mm -hmm. A lot of lay people are rising to the challenge. And it has a big influence on our culture as a whole. I mean, both from, you know, we are influenced by maybe our Protestant brothers and sisters, but also rise into the occasion, never, you know, uh, abdicating our role as lay men and women uh, as part of our, the renewal of the church and the culture. And, and, and when I say middle class, I want to clarify, I don't mean wealth. I don't right, mean in terms right. of material. Yeah. Right. It really is, the, the, he was talking about the, the level of education and the level of activity and, uh, and prayer and that sort of thing. And, yeah. and I think that's the challenge. You know, we really do need to be well formed yeah. in terms of theology, but also spiritual there, there is a distinctiveness really to the American experience that, that, yeah. that translates so well to this lay apostolate. Hmm. The, the mobility we have, the freedom, the autonomy 
uh, the diversity of the, the broad spaces of this country. I mean, if right. you don't like it here, you can move a thousand miles there yeah. and, and start over. That's right, uh, that's right. And the, and the creativity, the entrepreneurial right. spirit. Right, towards, yeah. You know, yeah. That okay. It's easy to complain about the negative features, <laughs> but it's also important to capitalize on all the potential. And yeah. you realize how unique we are, that we have that ability to start an apostolate. That's right. Or we think that's a normal thing to right. do. It's such an American attitude towards the faith. And it's something to be proud of, that, yeah. that we want to be as involved as we do. And that's where I was talking about having pride in American Catholicism. That's, that's part of it. That's awesome. Uh, you won't want to miss the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. One of the biggest lessons I took from doing the research on this book was just how many amazing stories we have right here on these shores. You know, we know about Catherine of Siena, Thomas More, Augustine, Aquinas, those great names, but we don't know the names that would form the Catholic Church and what would become the United States. Names like Archbishop Sagers, Eusebio Kino, Mother Matilda Beasley, Margaret Hari, Nelson Baker. They really brought their love of Christ to bear in the cities and out in the wilderness where, you know, the majority of the country was wilderness for many, many years. They built the church where there was nothing like what happened out in Victoria, Kansas with the Cathedral of the Plains. The immigrants came in, they had nothing, they built a small church, they built a larger church. Eventually they built a massive church to minister to those from the heart of Christ, bringing that love to everybody. I am a communication arts major, the president of Film Club, and an editor for Franciscan University Presents. It's really great to be able to work on Franciscan University Presents because it is a national television show on EWTN, and in a lot of other schools you're not going to have that kind of ability to put that on a resume. When I graduate, I know that I'm going to, to be firm in sticking with my faith and you know going to daily mass and a frequent confession and things like that, because instead of just learning with my mind or just focusing on schoolwork, I, I actually you know, can grow with my whole person. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This is our final segment, and Regis, could you start us off? Well, I can't say enough uh, good things about the book. It is, it's delightful, uh, Emily. It's chock full of, uh, of insight and interesting, even fascinating, beguiling details about our own history, our past, that we really do need to resurrect because it's important, it's relevant, uh, and uh, it, it's worth knowing. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, of a comment that Lord Byron made after reading Augustine's Confessions. He said, I didn't realize there were so many transgressions I hadn't <laughs> yet committed. <laughs> and here are so many figures I hadn't yet remembered. And it's good to go back and, and find them afresh and, and sort of uh, integrate them into one's own self-understanding. It, it enriches the sensibility. The, the piece that, that you had on uh, Claire Booth Luce, uh, really, really struck me because I've long been a fan of of of, uh, of her prose. Uh, she was an extraordinary woman. Uh, uh, it, it seems that that Fulton Sheen, however, didn't hear her first confession. Uh, he, for some reason, he wanted somebody else to hear it, and he told her that. And he said, "Look, Claire, if you can think of somebody uh, to hear it, uh, let me know, and I'll get him." And she said, "Find someone who has witnessed." the rise and fall of empires, uh, and he can hear my confession. I mean, a little pretentious, <laughs> but she had that kind of presence. Uh, that's an amazing story. I, I don't know if you included Mother Cabrini, uh, did you? Okay. What, what struck me about her was she was so absolutely terrified of water, and yet she traveled by, by ocean liner, God knows how many dozens of times from Europe 
to the United States and South America. And she somehow was so uh, intrepid that she overcame that fear. For that alone, I think, one, one should have her canonized. But the work she did, she's typical of the people that you uh, anthologize. And, and it helps, at, at the same time, to throw into uh, the shadow people like Jim Thorpe uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, Cuomo uh, and others of, of not quite uh, uh, the brightest sheen. <laughs> but it, you know, it's the salt and pepper that makes uh, uh, the seasoning uh, so, so tart. And it's a great story, and I think, I think everybody should buy it, and I hope you make a pile of money. <laughs> that should be uh, an incentive for writing the book. Dr. Johnson says only a blockhead would write for free, and I'm glad <laughs> you got paid. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Regis. Scott? Another aspect of the American legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Entrepreneurial apostolate. That's yes. right. You know, the, um, the fact is, there are so many people, we've covered many of them, you know, I'm Babe Ruth, you know, and Buffalo Bill, and you mentioned Jim Thorpe and uh, John Wayne, and, and, and a lot of them are having late conversions after, you know, making a mess of their lives and this sort of thing. But it just enriches the sense of being an American Catholic, because I'll be honest, you know, you know, on the one hand, you hear American Catholic, and it just sort of makes me bristle, like, you know, I'm Catholic first and American second. But it isn't an either or, you know. The other thing, too, is that I've often felt as though, as a convert, you know, I look at America very differently as a Catholic. You know, that we were the first experiment in a kind of a Protestant or even a post-Protestant you know, social economic political form. But whatever, you know, whatever the circumstances, we are where God wants us. And as we study this stuff, or as I just simply read it with my wife in our morning prayer, it's inspiring. It really is. And it makes me proud in a way uh, I haven't been, and I, I'm gonna give this to my older kids because I think my older kids recognize that I've often struggled with this idea of, uh, I'm proud to be a Catholic much more than an American. I, I love our country, but I just tend to fixate on the problematic elements. And there are, there, there's a rogues gallery, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But there are so many heroic figures. Many of them are famous, but most of them aren't. And that just, I find very inspiring and uh, it causes me to support entirely, you know, somebody is like Kimberly running for city council, you yeah, know, yeah. and Catholics just getting involved in the culture. Uh, so thank you. This yeah. is good stuff. Thanks, Scott. Emily? I think for me, writing the story, it was, as Scott said, I felt so proud to be mm. an American Catholic. I felt yeah. proud of my story as an American Catholic for the first time. But one of the things that I found in the book that I wasn't expecting was how much guidance there is for the new evangelization. Like I was expecting to find examples of how Catholics can live in the public square, but I wasn't expecting to find, you know, we, when we talk about the new evangelization, we don't always know how to proceed. It's the, you know, the popular conversation in Catholic circles. What is the new evangelization? Do we have to use Facebook? Do we have to use YouTube? What do we do? <laughs> but human nature hasn't changed. You know, for all that the cultures change, for all that, you know, we have YouTube and Twitter and all of these new tools at our disposal, people are still the same. And so when you look at the stories of our fathers and mothers in the faith and what worked, you know, they came to a country that didn't know anything about Christianity. And then others were coming to a country that was hostile to Catholicism. And yet 
they built a church here. They won souls. They, they made converts. Mm -hmm. uh, they secured a place for the Catholic Church in America. And so I think how they did that, um, one of my favorite stories was Bishop Patrick Minogue, the first Bishop of Sacramento, who made a fortune in the California Gold Rush. And, uh, but one of the things he did was when he came back from being ordained, he used his fortune to pay for his seminary education. Mm -hmm. He was stationed in Nevada. And you know, rough, tough guys who weren't going to have anything to do with the priest. And one night he was called to give last rites to a woman who wanted a priest to hear her confession and pray with her before she died. And he showed up and her husband was standing outside the door with a shotgun. You know, he was like, no priest is going to talk to my wife. And Father Minogue slugged him and knocked him to the <laughs> ground. <laughs> there was no gentle reasoning. He knew what the man would respond to, knocked him down, goes in, prays with the woman for an hour, leaves, finds the husband still sitting where he'd left him with his head in his hand, just kind of shaking his head. He can't believe what's happened to him. Uh, but after that, Bishop or Father Minogue at the time received a lot more respect from the locals. Right. Yeah. He knew yeah. what would, right. you know, so sure. there's methods of evangelization that might right. not work in one place in time, but, <laughs> but work in another. Oh. Yeah. Um, you see the acts of service and the poverty, you know, those yeah. early missionaries were so poor. Um, what the travel they were willing to take mm. on. Father, one of my favorites, Father Samuel Mazzuchelli, the great apostle of the upper Midwest, came over as a 23-year-old, got himself ordained, and suddenly inherits a territory where he's pre that he's to be priest of that's a si half the size of his native Italy. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you hear priests getting frustrated today when they've got a couple of parishes that are half an hour apart. You're like, yeah. well, you know, they used to have to traverse hundreds of miles on that was on horseback, yeah, with exactly. their shotguns, you know? <laughs> so the sacrifices they were willing to make. Um, the other, you know, you mentioned some of the Hollywood actors, a lot of those men were not the most faithful of husbands, um, but their wives, instead of leaving them, stayed with them. And I'm not saying that every wife has to do that, but they, these women just prayed and prayed and prayed their husbands to conversion and repentance. And I think for all of us, whatever situation we find ourselves in, we all love somebody who's far away from the church. We love somebody who's not doing the best that they should be doing. And the power of prayer to yeah. lead people to repentance, that's one of the most important tools of evangelization is our prayers mm -hmm. and our sacrifices that we make on behalf of the people we love. And so for me, no matter where you find yourself, whether you're a bishop who's got to deal with a bunch of heretical priests in your diocese, if you're a priest who nobody in your flock seems to be listening to you or paying attention, if you're a mother who's worried about the salvation of your child, you're gonna find a model in here mm. for how you should be approaching evangelization, how you should be thinking about it. And I think that's probably the greatest gift of the book. These people deserve to be known. I hate marketing my books, but I don't mind marketing this one because I feel like I'm not marketing my work, I'm marketing their work yeah. and their work is so worth being promoted. It is so worth it. Thank you for, uh, for making this book. If you enjoyed today's topic, you can go to faithandreason.com or ask us for this, uh, this download. It's uh, excerpts from her book. Um, this entire mission uh, of Franciscan University is to form those who will be transforming the world. And I want to invite you to be a part of that. Maybe taking a class online, maybe it's coming here for uh, your degree, or, or joining us at one of our summer conferences or pilgrimages to holy shrines around the world. Whatever it is, get involved and engaged in the, the, the new evangelization. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. 
At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.